we have to give ourselves permission to do it the way that works for us and for our kids and to stop trying to hit everybody else's expectations. We have to shed the shoulds. And just because my sister-in-law or my brother-in-law or my friend down the street does it a certain way, doesn't mean that's what it's going to look like in, in my house. I had to let go of living up to everybody else's expectations, including the ones I thought I had set for myself, and really start meeting my kids where they were and myself. I'm Debbie Reber, and welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. Today, I'm covering a topic that was suggested by a listener. And as soon as I read her email, I was like, yes. And also, I can't believe we haven't done an episode on this yet. So today, we're going to be talking about being a parent with ADHD who is parenting neurodivergent children, because I know there are endless parenting responsibilities that rely heavily on having solid executive function skills or balancing an inordinate amount of demands and emotional labor. And I know that these same requirements are likely not super strengths for parents with ADHD. This is where my guest today, Elaine Taylor-Klaus, found herself stressed, overwhelmed, and struggling as a mom to three complex kids. When she initially shared with a psychiatrist how badly she was doing and asked if there might be something else going on, she was told, yes, it's called being a mom. But Elaine pushed for answers, finally getting a diagnosis of ADHD when she was in her early 40s. And that new identification and the personal development journey it initiated changed life for Elaine and her family in the best possible way. Today, Elaine is a professional certified coach, parenting coach, writer, and speaker. As the founder of Impact ADHD, she provides ADD parenting support for managing complex kids with ADHD and other challenges. Through her business, she teaches parents to develop personalized strategic plans for themselves and their families and how to communicate more effectively with their kids. Elaine is also the author of the book, The Essential Guide to Raising Complex Kids with ADHD, Anxiety, and More. This is such a good conversation today as we get into the many things parents with ADHD typically struggle with, how parents can best support themselves with the emotional and mental demands of parenting. And of course, we touch upon the many strengths of ADHD that can be leveraged to make a neuromixed family work better. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Elaine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I can't actually believe that you haven't been on the show before because we've been in conversation several times for your awesome summits that you do. (laughs) And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this is also a new topic for the show, which at this point, it's kind of hard to find new topics. So again, I can't believe we haven't had this conversation. So we're going to be talking about today being a parent with ADHD, raising an ADHD kid. And as a way to get into that, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your story of discovering your own ADHD, which I know happened when you were an adult. And I just kind of want to get a sense of where you're coming at this conversation from. Sure. I said to you earlier, thank you for having the conversation because it's so important. And I have so many conversations with adults with ADHD or their own neurodivergence. And sometimes they were diagnosed on their own as kids and now they're adults and they realize they never dealt with it. And sometimes like me, they are adults who watch their kids getting diagnosed. I, I often say I watch them one by one like dominoes getting diagnosed with a whole range of things 
like ADHD, anxiety, dyslexia, learning disabilities, you know, the whole thing. And at some point I looked at my husband and I must have been, I don't know, 40, 42. I was in my early 40s. I kind of thought there is no way that he can be responsible for all of the neurology in this house. (laughs) And so I was trying to go back to graduate school. Actually, it was before I became a coach. I was trying to get a PhD to help other parents. And I realized if I was going to go back to school, I was going to need some help. You know, I knew I was struggling. And so I went and had myself evaluated and I did a full psychoed evaluation on myself, just like you would do with kids, which is pretty rare for adults, which is how I know I have both attention issues and learning disabilities. And they were both diagnosed in my 40s. Wow. And I just have to ask about your childhood. Was it a surprise for you or did it kind of connect a lot of dots for you? Oh, no. It was like when I was finally diagnosed, the way I describe it is, I spent a couple of weeks crying (laughs) and then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, my whole life made sense. And I understood why I did so many things and where I struggled, like the social issues I struggled with as a kid or some of the substance abuse early and early sexuality that I experimented with. And then in college, I accommodated for myself by taking an entire major that I didn't really like because I never had to take tests. I could write papers. And I didn't have working memory and I didn't understand what that meant. So there were a lot of ways in which when I finally figured it out, when I was a kid, girls didn't have ADD. I mean, nobody really had ADD. When my brother was diagnosed, it was still called minimal brain dysfunction. So that tells you I was still in the 60s. And I was a smart kid who wanted to please. So I worked really hard and I worked harder than probably most of my peers And I had enough anxiety to kind of get myself going. And then I remember in eighth grade going to my mom and saying, I think I'm crazy. I think I'm going crazy. And she took me seriously and she took me to a therapist. And I sat across this big brown desk from some, no offense, middle-aged white guy who talked to me for a little bit and then looked at my mom and said, she's fine and sent me out the door. And that was kind of it. I just kind of learned to accommodate for myself and manage and and I learned to work really, really hard, too hard in hindsight. I was raised in an achievement focused family where you're smart, therefore you should achieve. And so, you know, maybe some eat, few eating disorders and some, you know, substance abuse later, I managed to do it, but it definitely came at a cost. Yeah. And I love that you had that moment with your husband, like this can't all be you. But what was it looking like in your dynamic as a parent with your kids? Like how were you either not thriving in that relationship or where were you struggling that you now know is probably a result of the way that you're wired? Yeah. Well, so a couple of things come to mind. First of all, I think part of what happened was by the time I got out of college and into my 20s, I had figured out how to manage myself, right? And I was doing a pretty good job of it. And then I got married and I married somebody with neurodivergence who was struggling a little bit more than I was to manage himself. And so I started with that. We did a lot of work in the early years of trying to get him some support. And that's why that conversation with him, because it wasn't all him, but at the first number of years, we thought it was, it was all him, right? Which it wasn't. And then as I started to have kids, my ability to manage myself or myself and my spouse, my household, as the demands increased, my capacity to stay on top of it decreased. And at at some point, I just kind of crossed 
threshold hit the wall, I just I couldn't manage it anymore. And I can joke now with my youngest, who's now 22, so I can joke and say, you know, my youngest put me over the edge. But on some level, it was true. Like I just, I had a lot of balls in the air and I was doing a pretty good job of keeping them all up in the air. And then I hit a point where everything just started falling. And to the outside world, it looked like we had it all together and we were doing great. And my husband had a business and I was, you know, an active volunteer in my community and a stay-at-home mom and part-time work. But on the inside, I felt like a house of cards and I felt like it was falling apart. And I just never felt on top of anything. And when I think back on it, like when I was in my 20s and I was in a professional track and I was in a really challenging job, I was a national organizer for a 13 state region. I remember then feeling like everybody keeps telling me I can do this, but why can't I figure this out? Why can't I get this? And it was like that as a parent, like everybody, the outside was giving me all this positive feedback. And on the inside, I'm like, don't you realize it's all falling apart? And it didn't look like it to the outside world, but it felt like it on the inside. And there was more screaming and yelling, not as much from me. I was more avoidant and crying and it wasn't fun. You know, it just, it wasn't fun. And I had these really interesting, bright, quirky kids, but we were just, none of us were hitting our best. Yeah. You weren't thriving as a family, as an individual. And I was trying really hard, (laughs) you know, I was trying really hard. Yeah, no, I hear that. I feel it. And so, you know, at some point early on, I remember going to one of my kids' psychiatrists and saying, could it be me too? And she said, no, honey, you're just a mom. To this day, that one gets me, right? No, honey, you're just a mom. And then she agreed to start me on a supplement. It wasn't medication. It was called Deplin. In those days, it was a medical food to try to help reduce my stress. Because I had three very complex kids. My eldest was particularly complex. And then, you know, that led to eventually going to a doctor for myself. And so for years, I was treated for anxiety, which it rounded the corners, but it didn't really help me navigate. And I think that's very common for adult women with ADHD in particular is that ADHD is often misdiagnosed as anxiety in adult women. Right. But I just want to even circle back to that comment of, no, you're just a mom. So the idea being like, this is what motherhood's like. So then on top of the fact that you're already feeling like you're not doing a great job at this and something has to give, you're being told, suck it up. You're crazy. Yeah. You're wrong. You're like, it was kind of like what happened in eighth grade. I said, I think I'm going crazy. And he said, no, you're fine. So invalidating. And I literally used that language with my mother at 13 years old. Like something's not right here. And it was the same thing with my child's psychiatrist. And she was a great psychiatrist. I really loved her. To her mind, I had three very complex kids and a complex husband. That was enough because I was what we would nowadays call, although I hate the term, high functioning. As challenged as I was, I was still the executive function for the family. I was still the frontal lobe for the family. And because I could make it to appointments on time, there was this assumption that I couldn't be impacted. Right, right. Before we kind of pivot and talk more about what you hear from parents who are also navigating their own ADHD journey. I'm just curious then, was it your getting that identification? You said was your early 40s and figuring that out. Was that really the start of you making this pivot and finding more peace in your family? Can you tell us about that? Well, it was, there were a lot of things. The diagnosis, as I said, I was on my way back to graduate school. 
And so the diagnosis allowed me to get, because I had to go back and do the GREs and that whole thing. And so it it kind of gave me that impetus to say, okay, I got to figure out how to make this work for me. And fortunately for me, I discovered I couldn't find a graduate program that met my schedule with three small children. And so I took a coaching class as a stopgap measure and I fell in love and I realized that this was what I had been looking for. This is what I had been doing. It was an empowerment based approach to managing these kids. And then as I started getting coaching and doing coaching, I discovered that it was, it had this profoundly dramatic effect on myself as a parent, as an adult. It helped me learn to start managing myself and set appropriate and realistic expectations for myself, as well as as improving the way I was communicating my kids. But, you know, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a while, but when I was in coach training, I remember we did a module, a session on planning. And they were trying to teach us some planning tool or other. I can't remember what it was, but I remember breaking down, losing it because I thought, well, if I have to help people plan, then I can't do this because it's too hard for me, which obviously it's not true. I've I've done it pretty well for a lot of years, but I'm also not the systems and structures guru, right? You know, you and I have talked a lot over the years and, and a lot of people in our realm help parents come up with systems and structures. And I'm much more focused on context and mindset and framework because that's a big picture. That's my skill set, And I think it sets the stage and it was the framework and the context that helped me get my head around it so that I could figure out and get some support to figure out the systems and structures that worked for me or for my kids. And they were always going to be different because it was never going to work for all three kids. I had to come up with different things for different kids. In order to do that, I had to give myself permission to be in the process of it with them, as opposed to feeling like I had to know the answers. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about some of the challenges that I hear from parents and that I'm sure you hear about. And we'll do that right after a quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, 
whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So you mentioned some of the challenges that you were experiencing. You talked about feeling like everything, this was this house of cards that was about to fall, you were kind of really struggling with stress and anxiety as a result of these complex kids you were raising. I'm wondering what else you hear from parents, especially parents with ADHD, that is so difficult for them as they're navigating this. I mean, executive function comes to mind for me, because that's something I hear a lot of like, oh my God, like I struggle with executive function, yet it's on me to help my kid develop their executive function skills? Like, how do I do this? So what do you hear from parents? And what do you work with parents on? So many directions to go. I'm just I'm thinking three conversations I've had just today with different moms with ADHD. So one who's a mom of teenagers and older kids, it was about managing her own anxiety and her own impulsive need to or desire to micromanage. Right. So for her, it's about managing the part of the ADD that makes it hard for her not to come in and take over because she's so worried for them. Right. For another mom I was talking to today, she's a mom of boys and she's like quietly, secretly asking for help, but doesn't really want her husband to know. Even though she was diagnosed young and she takes medication, but she's never done anything to treat her own ADHD. And what became clear is she almost doesn't feel entitled to treat her own ADHD. You know, we have this conversation about you wouldn't not get treatment for your kids or for your husband, but somehow she didn't feel legitimate. And I think that happens a lot with adults with ADHD, especially with women, is this sense that, well, I shouldn't need this. I shouldn't have to have help. I should be able to fill in the blank. And we have a, a group coaching program that we've been running for about a dozen years and I was meeting with one of the groups of parents of teens a couple of weeks ago. And we were having a conversation about being the adult in the room. And is, it doesn't it stink that sometimes we have to be the grown up <laughs> and sometimes we don't want to be. And what I heard myself saying, and it was, it, this has been an insight for me in the last couple of weeks, is it's hard to have a brain based health condition. It's really hard 
to feel like there's something going on in my brain and I don't care how smart I am or whatever, there's something going on that requires help or support. And that feels crappy sometimes. And so we second guess ourselves and we ask ourselves, do I really need that medication? Do I really need that support? Like, and, and we don't want to need it because we're human and humans just, we're terrible at asking for and accepting help, which is terrible at it. And we don't want it. And, and somehow we don't feel justified in it. I think I am almost 60 years old. I've been taking medication for, I don't know, 15 years or whatever. I take a very small dose, but it really makes a difference. And for probably the first 10 to 12 years, every day I would ask myself, should I take this or is this a crutch? Well, people wear, use crutches when they have a broken leg and they need a crutch, you know, like it definitely makes a difference. And I've been thinking about a lot with this medication shortage because I'm like pinching pennies to make sure I'm going to have my meds when I need them because I'm afraid that I'm going to run out. Now I get it's as important for me as my allergy meds and my allergy meds are really important. But for at least a dozen years, I questioned myself. And I think that's really common for a lot of us, that somehow we don't feel valid or legitimate. It stinks to have a brain-based condition. It really does. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I it makes so much sense in the sense of, I shouldn't need this, not feeling justified. And just that seed of doubt always, like, is this a shortcoming about me? And I'm just wondering in your experiences, is that something you see more widely among women than men? I see more women than men. So it's hard for me to say. I, I work with a lot of couples. I've worked with some men individually, but more women than men. So I see it more in women. I'll say when I look at my kids, my husband, my, my circle, I think a lot of us with issues with ADHD and mental health issues really resist having to have treatment for it. We don't want to. And there is so much stigma out there. And even if we're like, I'm a staunch advocate, you know, you don't get much louder and more vocal than I am about these issues. And quietly, there's still a part of me that's like, yeah, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't need it. Like, I have to have that conversation with myself all the time. Wow. I mean, I think that would be really inspiring almost for the families that you're working with, because you're very open and authentic about your own challenges with this. So that's very relatable. So I'm sure that that serves your work, but it's, it's hard. A lot of parents, they, yeah, they're like, can I work with you? I just want someone who understands what it is to have ADHD. Because if you put 10 people in a room with ADHD, it's going to look like 10 different people. It's very different. It's not as uniform as a lot of other conditions. It's part of what makes it difficult to diagnose and part of what can make it really complicated to to treat and manage is that it's so, it's got so many tendrils to it. And so when you feel like you found somebody who gets you, that's precious. Yeah. And I imagine so many adults, if they've been identified as adults, they've also, again, I don't like using the word high functioning either, but there are probably so many strategies and hacks that you've developed over the years. I can see that internal battle always, always going on. Yeah, well, and there's there's something interesting that I'm noticing now is there, you know, younger people having kids and, and coming into the community. When I first started, that people were more my age, and I've been doing this a while, right? And it's really interesting is the women who were diagnosed as kids or teens or, you know, young adults who were treated 
they seem to have way more clarity and confidence in this is just who I am and how do I, those of us who came to it late, I think there's so much baggage. One of the things I teach parents or, or adults who are diagnosed for the first time themselves is to put the stick down. Because I think part of what happens is those of us who didn't know for years, one of the ways we motivated ourselves was by beating ourselves up, like veritably hitting ourselves over the head with a stick to get ourselves to do things. And we were successful, but it, you know, it was not the most positive reward environment to do it. And what I do see is that a, there's a younger generation of, of parents coming up now who are feeling less shame and less stigma around having the diagnosis. They've lived with it longer. They may not have ever understood it or learned to manage it. Like one of the women I was talking to today, she's been diagnosed for 20 something years, but she doesn't even know what it is. They just gave her medication and that was it. And that's pretty typical. There's still a steep learning curve in terms of understanding the condition and understanding how to manage it. But I do see that there's some reduction in shame and and that's coming. And I'm hopeful for that. Really hopeful. Yeah. This generation is pretty phenomenal to see the way they are disclosing and sharing, especially about mental health challenges and neurodivergence, all kinds of things. And I, it does feel like a huge sea change that ultimately is going to be really positive in terms of, yeah, just openness and reducing any shame associated with the way that one is moving through the world. So I'm excited about that too. And I think social media has helped with that a little bit too. So, you know, for all of the evils that we hear of it, that's one of the areas where it's been really helpful. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I want to talk for a few minutes about how you help parents kind of bridge the gap when they are charged with being their kid's prefrontal cortex and they struggle with that themselves. But we'll take a quick break and then we'll get to that. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. 
I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So we talked earlier about the challenges of being a parent who struggles with executive function or systems or organizing and planning and then raising kids who also may have similar struggles. And sometimes we are charged with being that prefrontal cortex, with being that person to set up the scaffolding. So I'm just wondering in your work with families, what do you find helps the most in terms of bridging that gap I don't know if there's like some tried and true strategies, or is it more about helping parents feel differently about the way that they're experiencing it? Feel differently, think differently. I was a dutiful mom and parent, and I read all the parenting books, and I did everything the experts were telling me to do, and it didn't work. And part of the reason it didn't work is because my kids were neurodivergent, and part of the reason it didn't work is because I was neurodivergent. And... What I've learned is that we, the word that's coming to me as you were asking that question is permission. We have to give ourselves permission to do it the way that works for us and for our kids and to stop trying to hit everybody else's expectations. We have to shed the shoulds. And just because my sister-in-law or my brother-in-law or my friend down the street does it a certain way, doesn't mean that's what it's going to look like in, in my house. I had to let go of living up to everybody else's expectations, including the ones I thought I had set for myself, and really start meeting my kids where they were and myself. And so if that meant, here's my one of my favorite examples, is I tried to do one of those star charts, reward charts with all the points and all the things. And I mean, like the word consistency would shut me down like nobody's business. And they always tell parents, you have to be consistent. Well, I'm here to tell you, you, consistency is good and it's not everything. The point of a system is that a system is supposed to help you work towards a goal, but the system isn't the goal. So consistency is going to help you achieve the goal of setting parameters or modeling for your kids or whatever, but it's not the goal, right? The reward chart is not the goal. It serves a purpose of helping have conversations with your kids and reward them and whatever. So I graduated in my mind, and I think I have examples of it in my book from one of these really, really, really complicated reward charts with all these different bells and whistles and two points for this and minus points for that to a very, very simple structure. I had a piece of paper with three columns on it, one kid's name at the top of each column. And every time they did something good, I'd say, go give yourself two points, extra two points if you kill a mosquito. So, you know, I let go of the complexity and I gave myself permission to make things simpler and to, to allow structure, but to create some flexibility in the structure because we needed flexibility and we needed to be able to say, this is what we do, except for when we're having a really bad day. And then we shift to that. 
or everybody's doing their homework at this time, but this kid only has 45 minutes to do it because when they're done, they're done because they need to not work any more than that. And so there was a lot of permission to do it my way, do it the way that worked for them or for me, to not do it all. I often say you can do it all, but not at the same time. Permission to not have all the laundry done, permission to not get all the homework done, or just sometimes be late to school. And I know like some people are going to hear me and think, wow, what a slacker. But the truth is, the most important thing we can do as parents, particularly when we have complex kids, and particularly when we have have complex issues ourselves, is to stay connected and be in relationship with our kids and to build a trusting, connected bond with our kids so that we can problem solve with them and they can problem solve with us and that they keep coming back to us to problem solve as they get older and life gets harder. Nothing else really matters as much as that because that's what's going to keep them from experimenting and with risky behaviors. That's going to allow them to come to us when they're trying to figure out how to not do something that their peers are pressuring them to do. Like It's everything. It's all about relationship, taking care of ourselves and relationship. So permission. Yes, I'm right there with you. I love that. What I'm hearing you say too is that so many of the the books and the systems and the way that parents are guided in parenting often will highlight areas of relative weakness in a neurodivergent parent. So I love that doing it your own way, questioning all those things. And I imagine that's where the internal work happens, right? That's a lot of what you talk about in your book, the essential guide to raising complex kids. You really talk about this, like reframing your experience and your your thinking about things and giving that permission. So I love that so much. I want to just make sure that we talk about the strengths because there are so many strengths that come with being someone who has ADHD and other learning disabilities. And I'm just wondering if what you've found has really supported and really strengthened your life as a parent and your family dynamic as a result of your ADHD. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I was just thinking about somebody, one of my kids sent me the other day, some, I don't know, TikTok, Instagram, some video of some woman saying, somebody asked my family struggles with mental health issues. And my response was, no, we actually seem to enjoy it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And that's really what I would say is my, once I got a handle on it and understood what I was dealing with, right? And coaching really helped me significantly reduce my anxiety and managing my ADD significantly helped me reduce my anxiety and permission and all these other things we've been talking about. We started having fun with it. Like we let go of the stigma and we started being the barrel of monkeys that we were. And I started allowing the playfulness and the lightness and the creativity and the humor because there is no more entertaining place on the planet than my dinner table when my whole family's there. I mean, It's hysterical. So leaning into humor, allowing creative solutions were huge. Taking aim on one thing at a time and trying not to do everything, but to, you know, model for them what I could, being transparent with them about what I was struggling with with my ADD and how I was learning to manage it so that I wasn't trying to be this perfect parent. It's really interesting. You can see the difference in my youngest and my oldest from where I was dealing with my stuff and how much better it was for my youngest after I had dealt with a lot of stuff than it was for my oldest when I was still kind of an anxious mess. The thing about having ADHD is that it really, 
really can be your superpower if you learn how to outsource the challenges, play to your strength and outsource the challenges. You got to outsource the challenges. You can't just hide or pretend they're going to go away or ignore them. You have to figure out how to navigate them. But then you play to the strengths. I mean, I think we are often, a lot of us are brilliant at handling a lot of different things, which this world requires of us right now. There's deep empathy and compassion very, very often. There's a big picture capacity to see all these different connections and to see how they're linked with each other. I mean, they're, they're extraordinary strengths. And everybody with ADD is going to be different because all of our brains are wired differently. But we all have these incredible strengths and capacities. And when we play to them, I often say the solutions are in the successes and success breeds success. So when you help our kids or ourselves find success in any little thing, you can extrapolate and map it out to other things. So that means if you help a 14-year-old kid figure out what she did to plan a spend the night party with her friends, you can help her figure out how to get her homework done. But you have to see the value in what's working instead of that tendency to take a deficit approach and only look at what's not working. When we, what we pay attention to grows. And so when we pay attention to the strengths and we cultivate the strengths, I mean, one of my favorite examples is that my eldest kid, who was a tough kid to educate and raise, was a really good actor. And so I started putting them in acting classes in third grade. And I used to joke that it was just cheaper than therapy. Well, now they're a professional actor and that's who they are in the world. And it's, it was playing to their strengths, even though they could barely make it through a math class most years, right? But they have all these other strengths that I had to, not had to, that we capitalized on and cultivated and supported that performance paradigm of we look for what's broken and we make it better doesn't work with our kids. We really need to look at what's really good and enhance it. And then accommodate, support them through the challenge areas. Like that kid was never going to get an A in math and left she, the one year she loved the teacher. And that's okay. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for that example. And it's just so hopeful. It's the vibe that we go for here too. Like we're all about the strength space. So I love that. You have so many resources. So parents... I'm assuming you're familiar with Elaine, but if you're not, you need to check out Impact Parents, the podcast, Elaine's book. Like, Tell us a little bit about how listeners can connect with you, but also the different ways that you work with families and support parents walking this path. Thanks. Yeah. So we started in 2011. And what we knew then, Diane Dempster and I started what was Impact ADHD at the time, and that's still around as well as Impact Parents was that any parent who wanted to learn how to take what we call a coach approach to parenting should be able to have access to that. So a huge amount of what we do is free. And so for your listeners, we will give a, a parent's guide, probably the 12 coach approach tips. They can go to impactparents.com slash tilt and download something for free. Most of the people in our community only ever get free resources from us. And then those who realize that it this way of being can be really constructive and they want more. We do training and we do a number of programs that combine training with some coaching and support, varying degrees of coaching, depending on people's budgets and their time and their capacity. So whether it's, it's a sanity school training, which is really a foundational training in what we call the coach approach to parenting or our group coaching program where people get in there and they actually practice and work with it or private coaching 
the podcast, the book. I mean, there's all these resources. We've been publishing a, a blog since 2011 and now a podcast called Parenting with Impact. Our dream, our goal is to make sure that any parent who wants to access this approach to the world can do it in whatever way works for them, regardless of their budget, regardless of the way their brain is wired. We have scholarship programs, you know, it's all designed to make it as affordable and accessible as possible because we know it's effective. And we know that when parents, as you do at Tilt, when parents focus on ourselves, when we turn our, our attention inward and focus on the parenting and the self in that role of parent, the cascading impact for our kids is, is profound. And what they really need from us is for us to take care of ourselves so we can be fully present to meeting them where they are and, and be able to help them grow in the way that they need best. That's great. Listeners, I'm going to have a pretty extensive show notes page for this episode, and I will have links to all the resources to the podcast, to Elaine's book. There's a lot to dive into. And I love that so many of the resources are free and accessible, and they're really good resources. So thank you for that. And before we go, for a parent who's listening, who is just really in it right now, is feeling like they're overwhelmed, they are stuck in a cycle that they can't get out of, what would you say to them to help them feel that sense of like potential shift of possibility? So there are two things that come to mind. One is there are three words that can change your life. And those three words are up until now. Up until now, you've done the best you could with what you had with the resources that were available, with what you knew, you've done the best you could. If you're listening to this, that's true for you. From here forward, you can choose different steps. You can take different action. You can take aim on one thing at a time. There are tips you got in just this 30-minute conversation. There's so much available at Tilt Parenting. There's so much available at Impact Parents. So the other thing I would say is ask for the help you need. You do not have to white knuckle this and try to do this alone. In fact, it's so hard to do this, much less do it alone. So model for your kids what they need to learn most, which is to learn how to ask for and accept help by getting some help for yourself. And there used to be an ad here, if you don't get help here, get help somewhere, right? Just it doesn't matter where, start asking for the help you need and give yourself permission to get support and get some help in this journey because our journey as parents of complex kids is to be with them on their journey. And sometimes it can be really hard to witness. So we need help and guidance and support to be able to be present to them while they figure out what it is they have to learn on their journey. Cause sometimes it's hard and you can do it. So good. Thank you for that. That feels really good. Like in my soul, I kind of want a tattoo that says up until now, because I need a lot of reminders of that phrase. It's super powerful. Can I just tell you a quick story about it? Because I've never shared the story. It was the very first speech I ever gave as a parent in this arena. When I moved into the professional realm, the very first speech I ever gave was called up until now. So powerful. Such a powerful reframe, those three words. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for this conversation, for all that you do and have been doing for so many years for our amazing, complex humans that we have the honor and privilege of raising and for the way that you show up for our families. Thank you. 
Thanks for having me, Debbie, and thanks for what you're doing. It, it makes a difference. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the resources we talked about, you can always go to the extensive show notes page on tiltparenting.com. There you'll find key takeaways, links to all the resources that were discussed, and even a full transcript of our conversation. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. And it was edited by my wonderful producer, Andrea Curtis Amasquita. If you want to support this show, please consider joining my Patreon campaign and making a small monthly contribution. Just go to patreon.com slash tilt parenting to learn more. If you want to follow Tilt on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, please take a minute to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps the show stay visible so others can easily find it. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about any of the parenting resources Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.